Welcome to Center Scripts. Here we talk about health, wellness, and practical tips for your everyday life. I'm your host, Cami Smith. Thank you for joining us today for Centrist Scripts. May is National Stroke Awareness Month, and we focus on that as a health system, but really as a nation. We want to bring attention to stroke risk factors and symptoms and preventative measures. I'm here with Dr. John Gon, who is with Centra Neurology, and Michelle Adams, who is also a Centra caregiver. We're going to hear about your story, but first, tell us a little bit about yourself, and we can start with you, Dr. Gon. My name is John Gon. I'm an interventional neuroradiologist by training. I did all of my training, my medical school residency fellowship at the University of Virginia, and so okay. I've been a long-time resident of Central Virginia. Um, I have been a part of the Centra community now for just over a year, okay. started in February of last year, um, and have been tasked with helping to build and grow the neurointerventional program, which is the minimally invasive way that we treat things like brain aneurysms and strokes. And I've been very pleased and humbled by my um, participation in this healthcare system. Well, welcome. A little over a year. Longer than me. I've been here since <laughs> July. So, Michelle, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm Michelle Adams. I am administrative assistant. I work in Lynchburg General Hospital, and I support the site administrator and the VP of financial operations. Okay. We are going to have you tell us your story, Michelle. When did you have your stroke? It was a year ago, March. I want to say like March 28th, March okay. 29th. So a little over a year. Mm -hmm. Okay. Tell us a little bit about that morning of the day that you had your stroke. Well, I, I woke up that morning. It was a Sunday morning. I woke up with a headache, which not unusual. Um, and I, I didn't feel well, so I just spent the day on the couch watching movies with my daughter. And, yeah, I took a couple of hits of BC powders. I took a hit of Advil, and nothing relieved my headache. And then later on that evening when I got up to go to bed, my head just exploded. Um, it was the worst headache I ever had. Mm. And I sort of stumbled back to my room and fell on the bed. And that was all I remember until later on that evening, or I guess it was early Monday morning, um, my daughter came in and said, you know, you you woke me up screaming in pain. Do you need me to take you to the hospital? And I said, well, if I woke you up screaming in pain, then yes, I believe I do need to go to the hospital. Um, and so I stumbled out to her car. I climbed in the back seat and that's the last memory that I have mm. um, until, I, I don't know, two and a half, three weeks later when I woke up in the hospital in restraints. Wow. So you have no recollection of even crying out in pain? No. Oh my goodness. No memory Michelle. of that, of that time at all. Even still it's, it's gone. Wow. And, and which is a good thing. Yeah. Yes. 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 Let, let's celebrate that as well. So you had, there was no inclination that this could be a stroke. No, no. I just had a headache. Yeah. Um, and like I said, when I, when I stood up and my, I just felt like my head exploded. I don't know how else to describe it. It just yeah. was an explosion in my head and it, it was the worst headache I ever had. Dr. Gunn, what are some of those signs and symptoms? Is a migraine of that level, is that a common sign or symptom? So Michelle suffered from a relatively unusual type of stroke. So when we talk okay. about stroke, there are a lot of different kinds of strokes that we can see. And one of the mm -hmm. things that we're tasked with when we meet people in the emergency room for the first time is to figure out, one, are they having a stroke? 
And if they are, what type of stroke? Because the different strokes that we see have very, very different treatment algorithms. Um, the most common type of stroke, the type of stroke that we think of when we say stroke is an ischemic stroke. So somebody comes in with a blockage of a blood vessel to some mm -hmm. part of their brain, and that blockage causes that part of the brain to not work. And usually the most common blood vessels that are blocked are the, the blood vessels that go to our cerebral hemisphere. And so people okay. come in with numbness or weakness on one side yes. of their body, slurred speech, facial okay. droop. And that's what you see, all the advertisements that we see. Someone actually relayed this to me, and I wrote this down, the acronym FAST. So face, arm, speech, and time, and how all of those are symptoms. Very I had good. never Very heard good. that before. Yeah, so can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. And so we, you know, we, we're doing a big push nationally to educate people in the community okay. about how to identify the signs and symptoms of stroke. And the reason okay. for that is because stroke is an incredibly common problem. So it is the fifth leading cause of death in the United States. Wow. It used to be the third leading cause, but our treatments have gotten better. So it actually, we've improved people's survival from stroke, but it is still the leading cause of adult disability in the United States. And so we want to educate people. Stroke is one of those problems that because it affects your brain, you as a person oftentimes don't recognize that you're having one. So mm -hmm. educating people in the community to recognize when other people are having a stroke really mm -hmm. helps early identification. And that's very important because stroke is an incredibly time sensitive disease. And so mm -hmm. we've come up with a lot of treatments that are very effective for strokes, but they are only effective if we catch people before their stroke has completed, which happens very quickly. So we educate people, facial drooping, mm -hmm. weakness, difficulties with speech. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously we put the T in there for time to reinforce the fact that that's very quick. Now, Michelle had a very mm -hmm. uncommon cause of stroke. So ischemic stroke or blockages of blood vessels cause about 80% of the strokes that we see, 80 to 85%. Another 10% come from bleeding into the brain and then about 5%, which is what Michelle had, is bleeding along the surface of the brain. So she presented with a very classic description of someone who suffers from a brain aneurysm rupture that wow. causes their stroke. So that severe headache, that thunderclap headache, it's the worst headache of your life. It's a very, a very uniform description of how that headache feels. And that gives us a, an early clue because ischemic stroke, which is the blockage of the blood vessel, comes with dysfunction of the brain, weakness, mm -hmm. numbness, slurred speech, but it doesn't come with pain. So patients oh. with ischemic strokes don't have headaches. So okay. when someone describes a headache associated with problems like that, we, we are very worried that it is bleeding. Okay. And that's important because we have pathways. When a patient comes to the emergency room, like Michelle does, the first thing we do is we whisk her off to the CAT scanner. Okay. Um, to take pictures because we want to identify if we think it's an ischemic stroke, which oftentimes sends that patient either to get blood clot busting medicines, intravenous thrombolysis, or to my operating room to have their clot removed okay. from an endovascular treatment through the blood vessels. If we see bleeding, like we saw in Michelle's case, that puts us down a whole nother pathway to help try to identify what caused that bleeding, mm -hmm. keep her safe while we try to find it and fix it. And then we have a whole nother set of treatment options like the one that she got mm -hmm. to keep blood vessels from bleeding again. So okay. um, it's a very, very complex algorithm that we have to go through to help find what the right 
diagnosis is and what the right treatment is. And obviously yeah. doing that quickly and effectively allows people like Michelle to go from being on literally on death's door to sitting here talking about it. Yes. I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> so is it pretty common to have that memory loss that she experienced as well? Or was that just a benefit for her to not have to remember that pain? It is incredibly common. Oh, okay. So I would say it's, it's actually funny, interesting. She was in the hospital for over a month. Mm-hmm. Wow. Very, very sick for most of it. Um, in soft restraints for some of it um, to keep her safe. Um, but I saw her every day, oftentimes multiple times a day. Um, we oftentimes meet family members, caregivers, people that are there with mm-hmm. them who form very strong emotional attachments to us because we're helping their loved one get through a life-threatening issue. We'll discharge them from the hospital. I see them for my routine one-month follow-up, and the caregiver, the loved one, the spouse comes and gives me a huge hug and kisses me on the cheek and says, oh, Dr. God, I love you so much. And the patient <laughs> looks at me like, I don't know you. <laughs> I'm not, you go in for a hug, and they're like, ah, I don't know you. Oh, so wow. if for whatever reason, the brain does not want to remember traumatic events like this. And so it is almost a ubiquitous event for a patient not to remember the events around the yeah. things that went on. And for someone like Michelle, who went through so many things for such a long period of time, there is going to be a huge chunk that she doesn't remember, that her brain doesn't want her to remember, um, which is a protective mechanism that the brain has. Yeah. Now, I've heard a phrase, time is brain. Is that what you were referring to earlier in just trying to get the patient into care as fast as possible so that the stroke does not complete? That is correct. Okay. So our studies would tell us that on average, there are about 2 million brain cells that die every minute in someone who is suffering from a stroke. Okay. So it really is very, very, very time sensitive. And that's the thing that we can't illustrate the most. I, I think one of the biggest things that I have seen that harms patients who don't understand the urgency of their stroke symptoms are the patients that have them that don't have the insight to know that the weakness that they have, you know, people say, I just thought my arm had fallen asleep. I just thought that I was tired and I was slurring my words. Mm -hmm. They go to take a nap thinking that taking a nap is going to make them feel better. They go to sleep, they wake up, they still have the same symptoms. Then they come to the emergency room. And by the time they get here, enough time has passed that their stroke has completed its course and we don't have the ability to do anything to help them. Yeah, so it's key Absolutely. when you're feeling or noticing in a loved one any of these symptoms. Absolutely. Yeah, to get help. And maybe even error on the let's go at least check. Yeah, well, so, you know, we keep the hospital open all the time. Yeah. It's, it's, it's <laughs> what we do. So it's never an inconvenience if you have something that you're worried may be a problem to see us and let us figure that out very quickly. Okay. So, so a stroke completes rather fast. So the recovery process, does that begin immediately? What does that look like? It does. It is very fast. So strokes, whether they are ischemic or hemorrhagic, occur Mm -hmm. very quickly. And they alter your life within minutes. Um, But the recovery is very slow. And so we look at stroke in a couple different phases of recovery. Mm -hmm. The initial recovery is the recovery that you see once we have fix the problem. So if you have a blockage in a blood vessel and we go and remove it, 
there is blood flow that gets back to the brain immediately and brain that may have yeah. been stunned but survived recovers very quickly. And so we okay. can see people who have very quick recoveries. Michelle's case, some of the issues that she had was because there had been enough pressure built up in and around her brain that it was causing her to be very drowsy. And by putting some putting a drain in that helped relieve that pressure, we saw her get significantly better very quickly. Yeah. So that's the initial phase. And then the longer phase is the brain that has been permanently damaged that you know brain doesn't regrow it's not your liver you can't regrow it so brain dies but we are fortunate enough that brain our brains are plastic and uh, people may not know what that term means but that means if you think about when you're born you don't know your brain doesn't know how to do anything mm -hmm. you learn to ride a bike you learn to speak a language some people learn to speak a second language you learn how to throw a baseball yeah. those are all new tasks that you're teaching brain cells to do Okay. And we can do that throughout the course of our life. So if we have a stroke that impacts our ability to speak, our ability to move our arm or move our leg, those brain cells aren't going to come back if they die. But what we can do is we can train the brain cells around those because they're plastic mm -hmm. to, to take over those. Okay. And that phase of recovery is much slower. So we talk about months and years in that form, in that phase of recovery. So that yeah. phase, the relearning to do things again is why patients oftentimes when they leave the hospital, go to rehab. So okay. they'll go to inpatient rehabilitation or they'll have outpatient um, physical therapy and speech okay. therapy that come. Because just like riding a bike, teaching the brain to do new things involves repetition and practice. And the more you do and the faster you do and the earlier you do it, mm -hmm. the better we see people get. And so we're really aggressive about rehab as that second stage of recovery to seeing people get better. And so, you know, the people on the front line, like myself, that fix the immediate problem, we get a lot of the fanfare, uh, which is great. It stokes my ego. <laughs> but a lot of the actual recovery from stroke is in the therapy world. And Michelle went through this with recovery and therapy. And um, that is a big determinant on how people do is how bought yeah. in to therapy they are and how aggressive the therapy sessions are that, that get them back to their previous level of function. So. Oh, I did not. Know. This is so, it's encouraging to think that those things that you thought were just gone can be relearned. And of course, time plays a huge part of that. That's got to be encouraging to your patients. It can be. And it's also very frustrating. And so one of the things we see with stroke survivors of any fashion, whether mm -hmm. it's aneurysm survivors, ischemic stroke survivors, um, is a very high um, amount of anxiety. Oh, depression, yeah. post-traumatic post stress disorder. So we see a lot of mm -hmm. a very strong psychological component, which you know, we work on keeping people positive yeah. and productive. And we know that the more aggressive they are with recovery, the more they stick with it and more perseverant they are, yeah. the better they do. And that's one of the things we fight with is keeping that positivity mm -hmm. because it is such a slow grind. You know, I see yeah. these patients every few months and their recovery is leaps and bounds they deal with it on a daily basis and get, get I think get ground down a little bit more with it so I always try to encourage and instill in them the, the positivity that they're mm -hmm. going to continue to get better and that does we see that positivity really help with their recovery a lot of effort over a lot of time so Michelle what was that like for you what was your recovery process like uh you know I it was it was scary of course but I feel very very blessed that I don't have any deficits from my experience that's amazing 
you know, I mean, I, I'm forgetful, but I was forgetful before. <laughs> we all are a so, little forgetful. I, you know, and I, I just, like I said, I just don't have any, any deficits. I really, I didn't have to do any therapy. I didn't, it was like I had this terrible thing. And then when it was over, it was over. I mean, I still have a couple of divots in my skull from when they put the drains in and, you know, scars from this and scars from that. Yeah. But as far as recovery, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I didn't have any problems. Yeah. I really didn't. Well, Michelle, we, we were talking about this on the way over here that we do a really good job of trying not to scare patients okay. while they're going through their disease process. But Michelle is a snowflake. She had one of the rarest kinds of stroke in one of the most wow. dangerous blood vessels that you can have that type of problem. We did a treatment that 10 years ago wasn't available um, to treat a disease that prior to about a decade ago had about a 50% mortality just from the treatment alone. And she has walked through this with flying colors and so I, I I saw the eyes today when I was telling her about it. Wow. I don't think she's ever really known the complexity um, of her case and severity yeah. of her illness because she has done, like I told her, she's done so remarkably well that, yeah. that we all feel very blessed that we have been able to help her get through such a dangerous disease. And she's at a point now where it is, we've basically cured it. The last imaging we showed, we took showed that her aneurysm was gone, that everything had healed normally, and she's going to go on and live as normal a life as someone with pink hair can live. <laughs> yes, you have <laughs> fabulous has, pink see. hair, <laughs> purple, it blue. It's gorgeous. <laughs> so, yeah. so I know you say that you don't have a lot of those long-term effects, but how has your life changed? And maybe that's just through knowledge maybe not physical things, but how has your life changed since your stroke? I spend most of my time just being in a place of gratitude. Um, I, I just, I'm so grateful for, for my life and my friends and my job and, you know, everything I have. I, I, it could have been, it could have gone a different way last year. And so I, I just spend a lot of time in gratitude and, and just so, so grateful. Yeah. For, for being able to recover, having gone through that and being able to still go to work and, and still drive a car and still talk to my daughter and, yeah. you know, all the things that people take for granted anymore. Yeah. It brings that heightened awareness mm -hmm. to just life. Is there a possibility of, of any kind of relapse or second episode? So a lot of that depends on the cause of the stroke, the type of stroke. Um, so one of the things that we do, you know, obviously getting the patient better when they're in the hospital is a very important part of why they're in the hospital, but yeah. figuring out what caused their stroke and fixing the mechanism is really important. And mm -hmm. this doesn't necessarily apply. You know, we found the mechanism that caused her stroke. We fixed it. And the reality of it is the likelihood of Michelle having another problem like she had is diminishingly low, okay. far less than 1%. Most people who have brain aneurysms carry about a 2% lifetime risk of developing another one. So we okay. follow them over time periodically to make sure that they don't. And we're going to follow Michelle forever. <laughs> For the same reason, although the risk of her having another one, given the mechanism of her aneurysm, is, is much lower than that. Okay. But ischemic stroke, which is the thing that we see much more commonly, has some very classic 
causes. Mm-hmm. And those are causes that we can oftentimes prevent beforehand. So yeah. when we talk about stroke, we talk about primary prevention, which is keeping you from having your first, and then secondary prevention, which is keeping you from having, you've had your first, and now we're going to keep you from having your second. Okay. And I call them the four horsemen of the stroke apocalypse. Okay. Um, there are actually eight of them, and the first four of them are cigarette smoking. So <laughs> you have cigarette smoking, high blood pressure, okay. high cholesterol, and diabetes. And those okay. account for 90% of the strokes that we get from athletes. That those cause plaque buildup and they cause oh. stroke health is the same as heart health, which is vascular health in general, which is we don't want crud plaque to build up in the walls of your blood vessels because mm-hmm. that's what causes strokes. That's what causes heart attacks. That's what causes people that get blood vessel blockages in their leg that cause them to have to lose toes or legs. Oh, and goodness. so we do a lot of counseling about we've, we've, we know that if you can get rid of those risk factors. If you can stop smoking, if you can keep your blood pressure under control, you can keep your blood sugar under control, which is diabetes, and you Mm -hmm. can keep your um, cholesterol under control, that you reduce the risk of having another stroke by 90%. That is wonderful. Um, And so a lot of that is a lot, the little silver lining of ischemic stroke is that a lot of that ownership goes back onto the patient. So, you know, changing your Diet, changing your lifestyle, exercising. The American Heart Association says if you can walk 30 minutes a day, mm-hmm. if you can eat a low cholesterol diet, they've the American Heart Association adheres to the Mediterranean diet, which is a lot of fruits and vegetables mm-hmm. and clean oils and not a lot of cholesterol, not a lot of fat, as little red meat as you can eat. If you're gonna eat meat, fish, chicken, okay. grilled, not fried. Um, and so if you can change your diet in a way that reduces cholesterol, reduces fat, you'll it will lower your blood pressure. It will lower your cholesterol. And then if you can exercise, that also lowers your cholesterol and blood pressure mm-hmm. and blood sugar. And then for whatever you can't fix, we have medicines. And so people get put on statin medications, which are cholesterol-lowering medications, okay. and aspirin and some other things. So diet, lifestyle, and medical management can significantly lower the risks of stroke. And if you want to be proactive about it, you can do it before you have your first. But I love that people are hearing this now because that prevention, we so often think of prevention for a second stroke. Like not many people are considering, how do I keep myself from having my first stroke? But everyone who's had one is probably thinking, how can I keep myself from having another one? And so knowing these things on the front end and being proactive and just taking care of yourself, living a healthy lifestyle, um, huge message that we can send out today. Yeah. I mean, all of those things that we listed are silent assassins. And you don't, mm-hmm. you know, the, the long term effects of high blood pressure, the long term effects of high cholesterol, you don't feel those on your day to day until yeah. you have the end organ damage, which is the stroke or the heart attack or the kidney disease or the vision problems. And so, mm-hmm. you know, paying attention to it before you know you have it, going to your doctor on a regular basis, even when you're young, mm-hmm. getting your cholesterol checked, watching your diet exercising. Those are all things that you can do, even if you feel great to keep yourself from the, the downstream effects of these yeah. silent assassins. Silent assassins. The, the four horsemen and the silent assassins. Right. I'm all firing <laughs> brimstone this morning. So are there any resources, maybe something that was helpful for you in your recovery or outlets we can send people? Where can we send them? Where can they get that ball rolling? Well, the easiest place is their primary care 
Okay. I think having a strong, established relationship yeah. with a primary care physician or a primary care provider, whether it's a nurse practitioner or a physician or a physician's assistant who can know you, mm-hmm. know your habits, work with you on the modifiable aspects of your life, your mm-hmm. diet, your activity, your okay. cigarette smoking. Um, that is, you know, they see all of our stroke patients after they leave. Yeah. And so they know how to manage these risk factors. They know the resources that are available. Um, And I think making the commitment to do it is hard. So finding some way to be accountable Mm -hmm. um, for lifestyle changes, you know, cigarette smoking is cigarettes are the most addictive substance that we have and they are the hardest to quit. And it's surprising that even after events like this, that people, cannot convince himself to quit smoking. And mm-hmm. that's very understandable because it's such an addictive thing. So finding some way to be accountable, whether it's a support group or. Yeah. Invite know, people in. Yeah. Yeah. And I think those are the two best ways to start that okay. journey. Wonderful. Well, thank you both so much for joining me today. Um, and thank you to our listeners who have joined in today as well. And we will be with you next time on Centriscripts. Scripts.